You're listening to Mocha Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, uh, that time of the evening uh, where you join us on uh, Truthful Media. And uh, yes, uh, we always have uh, one of the best, and he's our very own uh, Professor Andre Duvernaga from the Northwest uh, Universities. Uh, good evening, Prof, and tell me how are you doing? interesting times we are living in so many developments taking place on so many levels so yes indeed nice talking to you yeah absolutely prof as you know uh, the headlines are made uh, this morning was about the queen uh, passing away and you know she has a history uh, some uh, loved her some uh, have uh, other uh, feelings towards the uh, you know the indians uh, talk about her stealing all the crown jewels uh, from india and not returning the kohinoor and so forth and this and that but uh, you know as uh, uh, you know as the uh, as an afrikaner who grew up in uh, you know a culture where there was always uh, uh, this uh, you know the uh, uh, tension between the britishers and the boers and uh, you know the queen how complicit was she in all those uh, different skirmishes that took place and uh, she was someone that uh, for 70 years uh, ruled uh, world politics i mean she met every leader and she knew everything what was going around prof your thoughts yes uh, shafat you know she visited south africa i think it was in the late 40s i'm not precisely sure about the date and uh, we can say many things about the queen and i am not one of these uh, political scientists that are following the dynamics of the queen and her family and what harry is doing and william and all of this but when it comes to the queen i think in a way she was in the class of her own and really she was a, a person and i heard i read the story about her that she was working once at the time in the united states of america just working on her own without bodyguards and uh, a lady came past and asked her who are you and then she said i am the queen of britain pleased to meet you and she was a very ordinary lady she saw the uh, end of the first world war i think she was born 25 if i'm correctly just after the first world war she went through the full second world war and the trauma for the british people she brought together the the uh, the, the, the common wealth after the processes of decolonization and she was a stabilizing factor within that context that is not a way to justify what the british has done but i think to put it all in front of her will be incorrect i think she was above average she was without controversy and some people will disagree with me on certain levels but uh, she was i think the longest standing british monarch in history and uh, that is telling something in itself but it was interesting and i saw a photo of her when she was introducing lestras as the new british prime minister and i could see at the photo this was a lady that would come in 20 she's at the end of her life and i think it is it is unfortunate she contributed in a constructive way yes we know british colonialism as an afrikaner we have seen that our people were killed in ways far worse than apartheid at its worst but that is a story for another day looking at the, the individual i can only react to her in a positive way in about all instances yeah and uh, many say that she said nothing about apartheid and uh, she acquiesced in uh, silence and perhaps uh, maybe uh, an affinity there you know uh the the british the american and uh, maybe the uh, co- connection maybe she knew smuts about too prof yes uh, she 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 the close connection with smuts and smuts as a very close connection to 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 the whole british system but coming to the apartheid thing, 
It's very interesting, and I have done that history on apartheid. Apartheid was not so much a phenomenon developed by the Afrikaner. It was a form of institutionalized British rule that after 1948, the Afrikaners used in terms of their Afrikaner nationalist interest. But in essence, it was a British uh, structure of social and political engineering. And it didn't differ fundamentally from what we have seen at the same time in places like Australia, Canada, the United States of America, and other former British colonies. I don't know the history of India and uh, Pakistan and these places that well, but I believe the British would have followed more or less the same form of rule. And in that sense, uh, I think she know that the British were part of this bigger system. Now, we may ask the question, what changed more fundamentally in South Africa? And what changed here was our demography. And the political dispensation ran into crisis, a crisis that came later for some other British colonies, and their demographic situation was quite different. But uh, perspective for the future, Shafat, watch the space for the United States of America in 50 years' time, when they will have a minority of white people and a majority of other groups. So that was the, the dynamic. It was part of the philosophy of British colonialism and the related practices throughout the world. Prof, you touch on to something very relevant indeed, because they say that the white population throughout the world is diminishing. And if you look at Europe, all these immigrants coming through, nay, you look at even London with the amount of, you know, foreigners there, Asians that have come through in the next, as you said, in 50 years, the majority population of Europe will be non-Europeans. Your thoughts there, Prof? Well, Shafat, yes, uh, it has to do with a number of factors. And uh, in many ways, I'm following that debate because I believe it is very, very crucial. And uh, we have seen as a result of this huge shifts in power from the West towards the East. What is happening is when it comes to development of people, and higher living standards, the, uh, the, the growth of the population is slowing down in a dramatic way to the extent that it is becoming a negative growth rate. And that means that you have older and older populations and you find it difficult to get young people to do the jobs. And that's one of the reasons for the immigration to Western Europe. Western Europe has an older population as a result of development. And that's not unique to the Western world. The same is also applicable to a country like Japan, who is highly developed in terms of the Southern East uh, Asian countries. It is probably the, the, the pioneer country for uh, development and uh, they also have this older population the opposite however is true to some countries like for example china and india although they are also changing to a bit i have seen and then that's only i've only seen the, the 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 comment i think it was in a newspaper article that there are predictions that in 50 or, uh, in fact, a few decades from here, that Nigeria's population may be bigger than that of China. Now, that is, for me, too difficult to comprehend at this point, but I have read that quite clear, 
And that is also interesting if we look at Africa, that the population growth rate is not going down. In fact, in the next decade or more, we are expecting another billion people that is close to the current populations of either China, I think China is 1,4, and I think India is 1,1 or 1,2 billion people. So it's close to that figure of additional people on the African continent. And there are two places where they would like to migrate. It is down here to Southern Africa, or it is to Western Europe. And this let me think about the time I had developed scenarios with the, the director at the, at the point of the University of Pretoria. And uh, that rector uh, had, had the view, he was a demographer, and he said that his name was Flip Smith, Professor Flip Smith, and he said that the demography of today is the reality of tomorrow. So we are living in changing worlds. And then there's other reasons, Shafat, and that has to do with women and gender rights and this whole Me Too movement and what is going on. And there's a lack of differentiation of roles between men and women. And I know in the Muslim culture, there are strong lines in this regard, but this is not happening in the post-industrial post-modern world we are living in where equity is basically becoming the dominant value uh, and is uh, uh, of such a, a stature, the, the, the value of equity that is dominating all other values and value systems. And the result is a world that is out of control at the moment. Prof, you touched on to once again another brilliant point where you say the world is uh, getting out of control because they're not uh, following divine decree. It's all there in the good book. I mean, uh, you look at uh, the roles of men and women, even in the Bible, it's a distinctly, you know, uh, uh, written out there. I mean, it says you must wear your scarf, you must cover your head in the church and uh, many other things are said there. But as you said, uh, someone is trying to reinvent uh, life and uh, trying to reinvent a new value system which uh, definitely has no value but if uh, you and i talk about that or we talk against it uh, soon they'll put us in prison uh, prof your thoughts yes there's no doubt that uh, we are living in a time where democracy is associated with equity and uh, that you cannot even a person in terms of he or she or him or her, you need to get permission because there aren't two sexual identities in the world. According to some literature, there are something like 70 plus identities. And that is a serious problem for me. That is uh, an environment that is just you you cannot manage it you cannot give everyone the freedom there should be rules there should be order there should be structure everyone should know their place within the bigger system my take on it is this is taking liberalism too far to the point where individualism has become such a norm that it is destroying all other norms and individualism in a way is also related to self-interest. But I would like to make another point and here I am uh, basically uh, aligning my viewpoints with a well-known Canadian psychologist, Jordan Peterson. He worked on these gender interplay and he followed legislation in this regard. And the countries in the world where equity was the highest institutionalized was Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Finland, and these places. And what was interesting, the statistics show the more equity in terms of laws and uh, prescriptive uh, conduct, the more you get that the 
identity of either the woman or the man would be emphasized. What happened is people reacted to this. And women say no, they would like to be more womanlike. And men said no, they would like to do the men thing. And at the end of the day, the natural world show us another picture of reality. But uh, I know that the feminists and some of the radical sociologists are very much against any form of, let's say, uh, going against the principles of equity. And taking this to South Africa, Shafat, and this is a very important point, the core value of transformation uh, coming from the National Democratic Revolution idea, playing itself out on many levels, is that everyone in South Africa should be equal. Now, I know I am on dangerous ground, but I differ fundamentally from that. I recognize clearly that there should be different roles for different people. But I'm also knowing that every individual is an individual on his or her own and should be assessed accordingly. And maybe you and the listeners can think about that. Can a society progress in an environment of absolute equity? Or should there be forms of inequality in order to drive the dynamics of society? Can you see a society without hierarchies, without elites? We can differ how and why people should keep positions in society, but there will always be elites and there will always be masses. The way they are getting to their positions will differ. But you need the individual and the creativity of the individual to contribute to society. And that is the difference between successful Western states and unsuccessful communist states. They are breaking down the individuals. All of them are equal and there's nothing to work for just your daily life. And I, what I'm seeing in Russia at the moment is a reaction against Putin's war in Ukraine. And there's a strong Western tendency in this regard, a bit of a rebellion against these communist, dictatorial, totalitarian type of practices. But this is my view on life, but I'm also very critical on the current dispensation in South Africa, I believe we need a free society, a society where there's room for individuals, but where there is role differentiation, order should facilitate freedom, and we must give room for different groups and different entities because we are a plural society. And within this, we need to look forward into the future. But unfortunately, with the current policy frameworks, we are stuck and I can only see the challenges becoming more and more as we enter future here in South Africa. Uh, Prof, absolutely correct. The, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. You need all these people uh, to run a society properly. You need the lawyers, you need the police force, you need the carpenter, you need the electrician, you need the academic, you need the lawyers, and you need the doctors. And as you said, a society is made of a different compartments and different types of indiv- individuals, and each one has their own uh, you know, intellectual uh, limitations also. But uh, the important thing, uh, Prof, is uh, respect. And uh, the word R-E-S-P-E-C-T is being eroded. The word E-G-O, ego, is coming uh, through in a very big way, Prof, and it seems as if relationships are being compromised uh, all over. I mean, if you look at uh, the, the type of respect countries have for each other or the choices uh, you know, different leadership uh, make on behalf of the people, sometimes it doesn't um, reflect the true opinion of people. How do you uh, react to that, Prof? Well, I think that uh, 
Absolutely brilliant, Prof. Uh, live and let live. And uh, thank you very much uh, for your expertise, uh, Prof. Uh, your parting words uh, before I let you go? Shafat, we are living in, in dynamic times. We are living in times where really things are changing from the morning to the evening. You know, I'm entering a meeting and coming out of the meeting and the world has changed a bit. And we need to comment on this. And this means we need to be resilient. We need to adapt, but we must do it from a principled way. And I believe that the Holy Scriptures can give us a lot of guidance in this difficult road ahead. We live for 50, 70, 80 years, but the Holy Scripts are coming over 
millenniums, thousands of years with a lot of wisdom and we can build on that wisdom. Bless you, Prof. Wise man indeed. I'll talk to you soon. Have a blessed evening ahead, Prof. Thank you very much, Shafat. Yes, sir. Wise words uh, coming through there from uh, Professor Andre Duvonaga, and he's absolutely right. It is uh, our divine books of the Noble Quran, Alhamdulillah, which has uh, you know rules and regulations on how to live life and how to live it properly. And Alhamdulillah, uh, Prof uh, did ask me for a copy of the. Uh, translation of the uh, Afrikaans Quran and I did send it to him alhamdulillah he uh, he just uh, he said no I want to know how the muslims think and how they do that you know respect begets a respect and he says I've been talking to you for so many years the first uh, english uh, the Afrikaans Quran I sent to prof uh, was uh, last year or two years ago and then uh, someone swiped it off his desk at in uh, at the university then uh, subsequently asked me for a second one. I did post it to him. So Alhamdulillah, sharing these thoughts, and you don't know, uh, you know, we just uh, uh, convey the message, and it is Allah that can turn the hearts. So Alhamdulillah, we should make sure that our youngsters do not succumb uh, to this evil that's being perpetrated around us, uh, re- uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, around us, not recently, but uh, it's happening all the time now. And uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala save us and save our children and save the ummah from uh, falling into this uh, fitna and facade of uh, shaitan. Time now for us to go for a break and get back, inshallah. It will be George Galloway, yeah, uh, the king of alternative media. And inshallah, we'll end up the show with uh, George Galloway. Also, I must uh, thank beforehand Lucaro. He's my engineer this evening, doing a splendid job thus far. You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Uh, all joking aside, we are facing climate catastrophe. Not the one predicted by Greta Thunberg, the one precipitated by the actions of our own government. Joining the war between the NATO forces situated in Ukraine and the Russian Federation, by all means necessary, short of actual fighting, although we have plenty of mercenaries and no doubt some special forces, either behind the lines, sometimes even in the front line. We have joined that war, we have launched economic war against Russia, and we are the losers. There's no one, no sentient being at least, who any longer can pretend otherwise. We lifted the huge stone and we dropped it on our own feet. And the pain will go on and will become more and more severe as we move into what we must pray will not be a long, cold, bitter winter. But it's only September and the chips are beginning to fall, as might be the European governments. The United States is ready to fight to the last drop of Ukrainian blood. That much has been clear for more than six months now. But they are also ready to fight to the last European, to the last European economy, to the last European government, to the last European warm home, to the last European factory that's functioning, to the last European with a job. That much is increasingly obvious and all for a war that never had to be fought and again any sentient being knows has already been lost on the battlefield and the longer it goes on the more people will die the more territory of the ukrainian state will be lost and the more trouble we will be in it's hard to overstate exactly the shape we are in by April, 50%, or half of all of the income of an old age pensioner in Britain will be spent on electricity and gas, leaving just half for everything else. By April next year, three quarters of the income of the poorest families in Britain, millions upon millions of them, will be being spent on electricity and gas. These bills will become unpayable. I don't mean that they'll cause pain. I don't mean that they'll be difficult to pay. They will be unpayable. 
and people will not pay them. And the electricity companies will begin cutting off the gas and electricity of some of the poorest people in the land, including the poorest pensioners in the land. Then the politicians will have to explain to public opinion why they are allowing this to happen. Now, the unemployment that will come with these vastly increased energy bills, and they are already double what they were last year. Bills that were hundreds are now thousands. Bills that were thousands are now tens of thousands. Bills that were tens of thousands are now hundreds of thousands. And it's only September. And of course, the people working in the places that can no longer be heated or lit will be laid off and millions will be unemployed. And that's just in Britain with a 3% exposure to Russian oil and gas. The European Union has a 50% exposure to Russian oil and gas and Germany has a 70% exposure to Russian oil and gas. So if you're looking at the dominoes that will fall, the Italian government has already fallen, the Bulgarian government has already fallen, the Czech government may very well fall on the 25th of September. Certainly that was the demand of 100,000 protesters in Wenceslas Square last weekend, and they'll be back again this weekend. The demonstrations pouring onto the streets of every region in Germany spell big trouble for little soldier Schultz, the minority chancellor of the German Republic. Who knows, East Germany might rebuild the wall and decide to link up again with Russia if it goes on at this rate. In tourist, the Russian Tourist Bureau has just issued a rather natty meme offering hot water shower tours of Russia. That's right, Russian power, energy, oil and gas is 40 times cheaper than it is in Germany today, 40 times cheaper. You can be warm in Russia, but you'll be freezing cold and possibly unemployed if you are in Germany. And the German economy, when it sneezes, causes influenza throughout the rest of the European Union. Such is the central importance of the German economy to the health of the European Union. The euro has crashed below the dollar. The pound is at its lowest level compared to the dollar for more than 40 years. Both the pound and the euro have crashed below the dollar as a matter of deliberate policy by the United States government, which is pumping up the value of the dollar entirely fictitiously, a giant Ponzi scheme with no economic fundamentals uh, beneath it at all. That too is a Ponzi scheme that will have to come to an end. But not till the European economies are crashed and trashed. Never mind, a new British government has arrived on the scene. And if gonads were what it was all about, and melanin was what it was all, ad all about, we'd all be able to get right behind this new British cabinet. Because there's hardly a white male to be seen in the upper echelons of the Conservative government. We've got a woman Prime Minister, the third Conservative woman Prime Minister. We've got a black Chancellor of the Exchequer, whose name we shall all have quickly to learn how to pronounce. We've got our first ever black Foreign Secretary, the only Foreign Secretary since Robin Cook that I know well personally, and quite like him, to be honest. James Cleverly is his name, although he's not that clever, if he'll forgive me saying so. But at least he's not Liz Truss, the outgoing Foreign Secretary, although she will be his boss. I hope he knows the difference between the Black Sea and the Baltic. If he doesn't, James, you've got my telephone number. We've got a Black Home Secretary. Well, we already had a Black Home Secretary. Secretary in Priti Patel. Now we've got a 
Bravoman in Suella Bravoman. Whether she'll do any better than Priti Patel did is definitely open to question. And Nadine Doris, the stupidest member of the cabinet, has had to exit because the Prime Minister must have that title for herself. My point is that gonads don't matter, having them or not having them. Melanin doesn't matter. Having an excess of it or having a deficiency of it doesn't matter. What matters is the politics of the person, not their gender, their sexual orientation, their color, how they pray, which direction in which they pray. All of these are personal matters that have nothing whatsoever to do with the efficacy of the policies that they are going to pursue. Ask the American people who had eight years of Barack Obama, super smooth, could sing a mean Sam Cooke, change is going to come. Well, it came all right, but it was change in the wrong direction, going backwards. Barack Obama launched more wars, bombed more countries, deported more immigrants from the United States than any president in American history. Eight countries he was at war with. He actually said himself, I'm rather good at killing. He said it himself, and it was one of the few things he said that was true. So Barack Obama did nothing for black people, nothing for the people of America, and I don't believe that Liz Truss will do anything for women that Quasi uh, Quarteng, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, you thought I couldn't say it, didn't you? The new Chancellor of the Exchequer will do anything for black people or anything for the people of Britain. Our tragedy is that the leader of the opposition is even worse than they are. Why do I say worse? Because none of the government members in the cabinet are pretending other than that they are a government of rich people for rich people. The opposition, on the other hand, are jackals in sheep's clothing. They're definitely not wolves. The noble wolf does not deserve to be compared with them. They are jackals in sheep's clothing, pretending to be different from the conservatives. Well, actually, they are different in some ways, Liz Truss has let it be known to the media that she's going to spend £130 million to dig us out of the winter fuel crisis scandal that we are now in. In a Dutch auction, the leader of the Labour Party offered to spend £29 billion. Yes, that's right. Six times less than the Conservative Prime Minister is offering to spend. Now, if that money materialises, and it's still a big if, it's quite clear, given that Liz Truss has set her face against the public ownership and control of the rapacious, rapine energy companies that are destroying our families, threatening to destroy our economy with their super profiteering and their tripling, quadrupling levels of profits, she has set her face against bringing these companies, which only 30 years ago did not exist. Gas and electricity, water, railways, post, were all owned by the state in Britain 30 years ago. In 30 years, they've made money and they have reaped a tremendous harvest from public assets that we all paid for over half a century of public investment. So what does that mean? If she's going to spend 130 billion, is she going to give it to people? Far the best and most effective way, or is she going to give it to the energy companies as a reward for not raising their electricity prices by too much, even though they've doubled? We're supposed to be grateful that they might only just double and that the energy companies 
will be lavishly rewarded in the way that the procurement of the COVID response operated. What I said to you last week, a million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 32 years. 39.6 billion pounds were spent on track and trace of which there is no track or trace. Where did the money go? Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, and all the others should be on trial for malfeasance, for misconduct in public office, for grand larceny of the British public first, but they are not, and in the foreseeable future will not be. That's the kind of use to which Liz Truss will put whatever part of that 130 billion pounds that are put up. That's the kind of expenditure it will be. It will be opaque. It will not be accountable to anybody. Much of it will be going to donors of the Conservative Party, to former fellow members of the common rooms of Oxford and Cambridge University, to fellow members of the British elite. And the politicians who hand it out will be richly rewarded when they go through the revolving door out of government and into industry and commerce. That's how the system works. Democracy, yeah? It's so overrated. No matter how many times they tell you that this is a democratic country, it is not. Liz Truss is the Prime Minister of Britain because 80,000 people, almost all of them men, almost all of them over 65 years old, almost all of them white people, golf and gin and jag, bigots and boars, 80,000 of them, picked the least worst of the two candidates and she couldn't have had an easier candidate to defeat. Rishi Sunak sealed his fate when he forgot the old saw that he who wields the dagger never wears the crown. By stabbing Boris Johnson in the back, he forfeited immediately the support of all loyal Conservative Party members and all supporters of Boris Johnson. And yet, Liz Truss, the stupidest Prime Minister we have ever had, boy, we've had some fools beaten by 80,000 votes to 60,000, 57% to 43%. Now, I know the Conservative Party very well. I sat opposite them in the House of Commons for almost 30 years. I have known them up close and personal in more than 50 years in politics should be ruling India, not that an Indian should be ruling Britain. The chances of them voting for Rishi Sunak were apparently close to zero, but he still got within 20,000 votes of Liz Truss, who will quickly, apparently, be seen as incompetent, as uncharismatic, as lackluster and undistinguished and stupid as any prime minister we have ever had. And I have known a lot of them. I was born when Winston Churchill was the prime minister of Britain. I was too young to know him. Or Anthony Eden, for that matter. Or really Harold Macmillan, although I came to know him in later years. But I did know Alec Douglas Hume who makes Liz Truss look like Aristotle. But Liz Truss will be rather like John Major. She will completely fail to rescue the Conservative Party's fortunes. Mark my words. She will completely fail because the Conservatives have no answers. And that means that the next general election, when it is fought, will likely yield a hung parliament with a minority Labour government propped up 
by separatist nationalist votes or not votes in matters of confidence by the SNP at Westminster. That means Britain will be essentially ungoverned. In the teeth of the worst political, military and economic crisis that our country has faced since Napoleonic times, we will effectively have no government. Democracy, it's so overrated. It is, no matter how many times they tell you this is a free country, it isn't true. 90%, 90% of my Twitter reach is now forbidden by shadow banning and algorithmic suppression of reading a word I say. This is on YouTube only because anybody that wanted to watch me on Facebook will not be able to. Because although the right honorable gentleman Nick Clegg doesn't have the guts to kick me off Facebook, he pretends that my videos aren't working, that somehow the tape broke or some other demeaning, degrading device to deny the three quarters of a million followers I have on Facebook access to my words and my thinking. TikTok is the worst of all. I've got a video up now pinned of me defending China against the United States provocations in Taiwan when I looked an hour ago, it had 83 views. 83 views it had. Because, of course, TikTok has decided, being a Chinese company, to be more Catholic than the Pope, to be more royal than the Queen, and that therefore someone like me, even when I'm defending China, has to be suppressed. As a matter of fact, my friend Yaz just sent me a message seconds before I came on air to point out that an interview I gave to Global Times, which has a circulation only of 60 or 70 million people, a video and a written contribution, which is published in the Global Times today and was sent by them out on Twitter, achieved me the most coveted award the double whammy. It brands me as Russian state-affiliated media and brands Global Times as Chinese state-affiliated media. So for the first time, a piece of my output has two health warnings on it. Now, Global Times may or may not, I had no idea, be owned by the Chinese state. But I ain't owned by the Russian state, who have never, ever attempted to tell me what to think or what to say or what not to say. They wouldn't dare. They're not like that. They actually believe to a greater extent in freedom of speech than the United Kingdom does. It's fact, ask Julian Assange, who's getting ready, if he's lucky, to shiver through another winter in Belmarsh Prison. If he's unlucky, he'll be in a supermax penitentiary in Boulder, Colorado, and you will never see his face again or ever hear a word from him again. The truth is, this is not a free country. Neither is it a democracy. It's all lipstick on a pig. There's only one way that we can solve this crisis that we are in, in the short term. In the long term, we need a profound revolutionary change in the way our state is organized. I don't mean by that that what passes for leftism today will come to rule. I mean something quite different. It is my patriotic, democratic and journalistic duty to bring you the other side of the story. 
and I intend to do it. Whatever they do to me, however they try to suppress me, if I've got to go and do it from Moscow or Hong Kong or Belarus or Kyrgyzstan or Armenia or Serbia, I'll do it from there. It's my duty to explain to you what Britain needs to do to be great again. And I'm determined to do that. But in the short term, how are we going to get through this winter? There are three things I have to say to you in finality before taking your contributions and questions. We have to, number one, stop the arms trafficking to Ukraine. Most of the arms we're trafficking to Ukraine are being destroyed by Russian bombardment. Others are being sold on the dark web to terrorists and organized criminals. You thought Kosovans were the biggest source of drugs and prostitution and illegal weapons in Western Europe? So they were. Another NATO success story. But they will quickly be overtaken when the war is over in Ukraine by the Ukrainian criminal class the fascists who will run away and seed themselves throughout Europe and seek to wreak their revenge on European countries that they think did not support them sufficiently to allow them to prevail in this war, the stab-in-the-back theory that the Hitlerites have always, always engendered and fed from. The arms that we're sending there are useless, ineffectual. Read the testimony on ASB military on Telegram, by far the best source of information about the war, and you'll see them on their own videos talking about the ineffectuality of the military support that they have received. That's minus that which has gone out the back door and is now in a boot of a terrorist or a bank robber near you. We have to stop this trafficking because it's only keeping the war going. Yes, uh, let us uh, leave it at that. And uh, yes, I want to ta uh, thank Lukala once again for doing a brilliant engineering. And Alhamdulillah, yes, uh, lots of uh, points made by George Galloway, the king of alternative news. And, uh, you know, you can't disagree with him. I mean, what's happening, uh, racism is coming to the fore type of leadership that we're getting around the world and especially he talks about his uh, beloved uh, Britain there we have uh, he says a compromised uh, leadership once again and uh, he gives his superlatives well we uh, inshallah we'll uh, talk to you soon keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming a lot of knowledge uh, coming through from the team and I till we meet you again we bid you assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh